It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Most weeks, my guests on Preachers on Preaching are people that I'm talking with for the very first time. This week, however, we pick up in the middle of a long-running conversation with my dear old friend, Christian Wyman. Chris is somebody who has made me a better preacher, and he's a great preacher in his own right. He's the author of My Bright Abyss and other acclaimed books, a great poet, and was the editor of Poetry Magazine for about 10 years. These days, he's working as a teacher at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. He's an attentive listener to sermons, and the feedback he's got is remarkable and insightful. So this is a helpful, a particularly helpful episode of Preachers on Preaching. Without further ado, here he is, Christian Wyman. Chris, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. Thanks, Matt. Poet, Thank on, poet on preaching yeah. this time. Um, one of the things that I've thought before and I've, and I've learned from, from our friendship is, is the way in which reading poetry has helped me as a preacher. Because good poems are concise in their use of language, it's helped me become more disciplined to, to use less language to get a point across, just watching how good poetry does that. Um, but I don't often use poems to open up a larger point in a sermon, so the, the influence for me has been very indirect. Um, I'm not taking a poem whole and explicating it. And, and I've heard other preachers say that to do that is to be distancing, somehow to, to either sound sort of purposefully erudite and distance yourself, or just to, be, to distract from the gospel because good poems are complicated and they take a long time to unpack. How, like how, how what's the best way to use a poem as a preacher, do you think, or how ought we to be using them? Well, I don't... I mean, there are certainly books of the Old Testament that are a whole lot more complicated than a lot of modern poetry. Uh, Book of Job, no one seems to quite figure that out yet. There's a lot of the Psalms that are rhetorically and imagistically, metaphorically, uh, every bit as complicated as modern poetry. And they were written as high literary achievements. They were not written in the way that the Gospels were written uh, quickly and meant to get something down. Uh, they were literature, aiming to be literature. And so in, in one, and my first response is it, to me is when people say that, is that it makes absolutely no sense to say that you don't read poetry, you can't bring poetry into sermon if you're using these other texts from the Bible, because that is poetry. So you're setting two poems in dialogue with one another. Yeah. Or using one to, to touch on the other. Yeah, but I think the more dangerous notion is that a sermon uh, needs to reach some lowest common denominator. And uh, it's been my experience that the best preachers manage to speak to the most refined and least refined people in their audience at the same time. And they find ways of doing that. And the poetry that I love finds ways of doing that. If you travel around the world, and it's not it's not educated people who who uh, love poetry. Um, it happens to be in this country, but uh, travel around the world, and and poetry is supported by, you know, half literate, semi literate people, illiterate people who have it in their heads. It's an illusion that poetry is this difficult thing, 
And so I think that's a real problem. And also, it used to be that ministers, you know, were the smartest people in a town. All these ministers went out to the Midwest and founded colleges and magazines and wrote books, and, and they were the smartest people. And, they, and it was their job to introduce culture into these places. And now it's as if, I mean, I travel around these places, and it's as if they're afraid to do that. They feel like they're alienating their audience. Uh, and I think that's a little bit shirking a responsibility that, that they ought to have. So that we ought not to be, like well-educated preachers ought not to sort of be in an apologetic stance about what they've learned, right, and the training that they've received. And there are ways of doing this. I mean, there are, there are ways of introducing poetry where it's, uh, where it would be alienating. If you're going to introduce some high modernist thing like the wasteland into your sermon, I mean, you're going to, that's going to cause a problem. You know, but then there are poems. I mean, I I preached yesterday in Rockefeller Chapel down at University of Chicago, and I used this little poem by Anna Kamienska, a Polish poet. And Kamienska was a she converted in her thirties, and when her husband died, and converted to Catholicism, and had a very devoted, tormented relationship with God throughout the rest of her life, mostly detailed in her diaries, but in her poems too. And my favorite poem is this one. It's called A Prayer That Will Be Answered. Lord, let me suffer much and then die. Let me walk through silence and leave nothing behind, not even fear. Make the world continue. Let the ocean kiss the sand just as before. Let the grass stay green so that the frogs can hide in it, so that someone can bury his face in it and sob out his love. Make the day rise brightly as if there were no more pain, and let my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. Now that's an uncanny poem. What I did is put it in the bulletin, first of all, so that they had it, and, and somebody actually read it at the beginning of the service, so they had it in their heads even before the sermon came up there, but they didn't say a word about it. I'm sure people were quite puzzled by the end. It's an uncanny poem. In a way, it gives God all power and no power. Uh, you know, make the world continue. And God is, is responsible for making the world continue. And, and then no power. Well, it was going to continue anyway. You know, make, let me suffer much and then die. Well, that's probably going to happen. You know. There's, but, a defeatist, there's a defeatist air to it, even at the same time that it's doxological and full of praise, right? Well, that's the, yeah, that's the real paradox. And what I find so piercing about the poem is you get to the end, that's the one thing that, I mean, you think you're reading a sort of ironic poem all the way through. You know, let the day that I, the day after I die be exactly like the day that I die, as it's going to be. Uh, and, and then she says, and make my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. Well, then that's a real request. That's a little supernatural request that she's made and then if you think back to the poem that you've just read it is about as clear a poem as you'll ever read there's not a difficult word in there there's not i mean anyone could understand that poem right up to the right up to the end yeah and and then you think gosh it, it's as if what she's done is she's made an that prayer has been answered he's given god has given her a poem as clear as a window pane and what you feel suddenly is that pure materialism that she has created, that world in which ever, nothing changes, there's no hope, a little ripple of spirit goes through it. And it's uncanny. And, and so I think that's like, a poem like that fits into a worship service 
very easy. I used it to talk about uh, the kinds of prayers that you could ask. You know, is it appropriate to pray for your life if you're dying? Is it appropriate to pay for your child if they're sick? Is it appropriate to pay for a parking space? Is it appropriate? And what is it appropriate to pray for? And this was one poem that I used as an example. Did you answer those questions? I answered every one of them. <laughs> what were you <laughs> What's the answer? Uh, the answer is yes to all of those. It, it sometimes, um, sometimes we pray to be fit for, we, we pray to be freed of the need for prayer, like Meister Eckhart, who says, um, uh, well, George Herbert says, let me not love thee if I love thee not. Meister Eckhart says, we pray God to be free of God, the 13th century Meister Eckhart. And, and what he means by that is, we pray for a state of mind in which we would not be conscious of praying. We would not be conscious of the word God. We wouldn't have to reach for this. And I think those other, I think what the Kaminska poem teaches us is that um, one of the things that we pray for is to be fit for reality, the severest of whose terms is death. Uh, uh, that that is something that we can pray to God for. To accept. To accept our it. Mortality. To be fit for it, yeah. And, and, and then I say, I, I think you might even need to pray for a parking space. Um, and the example that I use is, you know, Jesus' first miracle is uh, a kind of party trick. I've heard you preach on this. The kind of, you know, he turns water into wine. You know, voila! You know, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there's something absurd about it. Yeah. But maybe the lesson is, is that uh, if if that can be his first miracle, maybe the point we take from it is that God is to be so present that there is no aspect of our lives from which God can be altogether absent. And that, yes, you're meant to pray for everything, you know? Are there particular poets or poems that you think preachers ought to be reading? Well, George Herbert is always very effective. But most preachers who know poetry uh, know of George Herbert. Um, but again, you have to choose the ones of Herbert that don't require a lot of explication. I mean, I don't think you want to spend a sermon explicating a poem. It's got to be very, very quick in and out. Yeah. Uh, but there are, a lot of people use Mary Oliver. I, I don't, she's not my favorite poet, but, but a lot of people find her effective. I find it um, mainly, mainly poem by poem basis rather than poets. Recently, Yehuda Amichai, he seems to me to have, he's very clear, he seems to me to have a lot of great poems that people could use, Jewish and I don't think you'd want to force a Christian context on him, but uh, but he has a lot of beautiful poems about the Bible. He was just saturated. He knew the Bible utterly, and his poems come out of that. Is he contemporary? He died, uh, yeah, he died probably 10 years ago. Yeah. One of the things I found, in, and I'm not a gigantic reader of poetry, but um, I think I tend to experience poems a little bit like like rock songs where... You hear too many of them, but out of the 200 that you hear, one of them will just make your hair stand up. And, and so occasionally when I read poetry, the, the ones that floor me, and I think that there's application to, in the pulpit, if not directly, then, then indirectly, are, are not devotional poetry, but atheistic poetry that is arguing with Christianity or, or dismissing it or not even acknowledging it. I think about... Um, Abed 
that Philip Larkin poem, which we've talked about it before, right? Yeah, um, that's it. that's when it starts. Uh, I work all day and get half drunk at night, waking at four to soundless dark. I stare. In time, the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's really always there: unresting death, a whole day nearer now, making all thought impossible. But how and where and when I shall myself die? That cheery poem. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and again, this maybe is doing the poem a disservice. But I tend to think of it as a as a. I mean, he wouldn't like this, I don't think, but I think of it as a, as a photo negative of, of what I'm trying to do in the pulpit, as an illustration of the, like, the logical conclusion of our contemporary atheism, I think, results in that kind of hopelessness. Um, and so to hear somebody make that hopelessness beautiful, pointed, articulate, is to have a reckoning with, not our opponent as preachers, but a worldview that doesn't get, that we're surrounded by, but that we don't acknowledge in the church very often. Yeah, I would even make it more intimate. I think it's a worldview that we actually own. Uh, I bet a lot of your parishioners out there listening to you actually own that that thing with Larkin. They're unable to resist it. The reason it's so powerful is because they feel, you know, that, that great quote by Jürgen Moltmann, all theology has to be conducted in earshot of the dying Christ. And if you take that, poem as an illustration of that, the absolute destitution. Um, I think what's difficult, in my experience, what's difficult for religious people hearing that poem um, is the degree to which they identify with it. And and then I think, but you can really use that, I've never heard anybody use that in a sermon, but you, you I think there's probably a way of using that to, uh, um, as a gesture of solidarity and sympathy and understanding. Uh, rather than just opposition, mm. there's Thomas Thomas Halik, the Czech philosopher, priest, a priest actually, but uh, is a writer. Um, he writes about the mustard seed, you know, and how the the parable of the mustard seed, and typically preachers preach on that and saying, well, if you have faith, the way we interpret that is if we have faith the size of a mustard seed now, then it will grow into a greater faith at some point, and. He says that he thinks we're interpreting it backwards, at least for now, that what what is happening, what needs to happen is our faith is being crushed to the size of a mustard seed, something that's vital and volatile and has all this light potential in it, but it's tiny. And what it's being crushed by is atheism. And uh, not exactly the kind of atheism that we resist that seems... You know, like Christopher Hitchens, not that. That's not what's dangerous. It's it's much more. It's the atheism that we feel in our hearts. Simone Weil says there are two atheisms, of which one is the purification of God. And I think what Halleck is trying to get at is that there is a kind of nothingness that's all around us. Um, uh, that Christianity has to deal with, and I think poetry is particularly good at that, at giving you a way of of uh, Recognizing what you're feeling and 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 being able to handle it, you know. I think one problem with uh, the the a lot of the sermons that I hear is that they don't deal with the degree of disbelief, unbelief, lack of faith, atheism, outright atheism of their parishioners. So to take then that nothingness and bring it into worship at some level is to sacralize it 
right? To acknowledge it, to name it, to yeah, to not be afraid of it. Yeah, yeah. which seems uh, to have scriptural warrant. I mean, you know, it's 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 the cross, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think that 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 some contemporary poetry of the little bit of it that I know is able to to name that fact more plainly, more bluntly than um, than most of what I'm reading in preparation for a sermon or just reading in general. Um, and there's that strange way in which good poetry makes that nothingness or the acknowledgement of it beautiful, Yeah, which is also, you know. Yeah, it's a real paradox. It's a well, sumptuous destitution is uh, Emily Dickinson's great phrase. There's some. There turns out to be some kind of flowering amidst of nothingness. Uh, and a lot of churches, you can feel that a lot of people do not believe. And I mean, you can feel it. You can walk in there and you can feel it. And that's not a, a criticism. They're in church. They're there for you know. They're trying to get something. Uh, I mean, you know, praise God that they're there. But. Preachers these days have got to preach to those people. You know, they've got to see those people sitting there at the back row who are saying, this is just BS, what this guy's saying. It's very hard, I think. I mean, and, and I've preached in, as, as you know, I've preached in churches where the tendency on the whole is more to take for granted. At least to take the notion that Jesus ought to be taken seriously for granted. And I've preached in congregations where there is just like through and through skepticism, not only of me and the tradition, but an internalized skepticism where people who are there are suspicious of their own reasons for being there. And it's it's hard to then link up, um, right, to link up with that. I mean, I think what you were saying earlier, to acknowledge it and name it and trust, right, that God can attend to it. But that is what art can do. That is the very thing that art can do. A lot of these people can be reached by poems who would never be reached by Scripture. If you give them a piece of Scripture, they're just immediately saying, oh, my God, that was written and, you know, uh, changed 300 years later. And you know, it, But what about the notion, though, that Scripture is uniquely <laughs> revelatory in a way that even the best poem is not, so that... You can't just switch the two out. That 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 poetry ought always to be in a subservient role to scripture in Christmas in Christian worship. Um, you buy that? No, I don't. But uh, but I understand that other people. I'm going to be the only one thinking that. So I, I'm not I'm not advocating for a change. Um, uh, but no, it wouldn't bother me if you had a service sometime that didn't have scripture and used poems. We do that at the. Well, rarely, but the chapel service will sometimes just have poems. Um, uh, No, I'm not. It would never bother me, but... um, I don't think you're you're alone by any stretch in that. Oh, really? uh, um, I was talking to a preacher last week, who uh, Donna Scopper in New York City. They do every week a, um, not an Old Testament and a New Testament lesson in her church, but a, um, what do they call it? We're going to get these terms wrong, but like ancient testimony and modern testimony. And so they sat side by side. They do a scripture reading. That's the ancient testimony. And then every week it's something, you know, from a newspaper article or from a poem. And they're not, she's not, I don't think the way she was describing their their liturgy, it's not, all right, we're going to read this in order to crack open the Bible. It's here are these two testimonials and we're going to treat them. And sometimes she preaches on the, the modern testimonial and lets scripture be 
you know, in the background. Um, yeah, well, see, you, I'm not, I'm you not, know, I have my problems with right. that, but I think uh, uh, liberal Protestants in general um, would appreciate that more so than they're getting. I, and I think this isn't about my ranting and raving here, but but I think that we there's a danger there because then you know we we, we further unmoor ourselves from uh, what is uniquely revelatory in Scripture. Um, so I do think there ought to always be a, a, a subservient relationship in the worshipful context of literature, to, of non-biblical literature to the Bible. Um, but that's interesting. If what you're saying is, as a gambit, right, if if you have a lot of people who are going to just, if the Bible comes up, they're going to be suspicious of it, right? But I think the danger is, um, I mean, you have to think practically. A lot of People tune out during these scripture readings. I mean, most people just tune out. Uh, they don't even recognize that it's that that it has anything to do with the sermon. That you know, and uh, I think that that some there has to be some kind of energy injected into these services in a to, in a different way. I mean, the ones I go to, I mean, I want we do once did an exchange in the Christian century where you said that the um, you know. We were talking about the church becoming smaller, and you said, "Well, maybe it'll become something strange." Remember that? Yeah. And that seems to me a beautiful idea and a valid idea. But most of these churches that I go to aren't allowing themselves to become strange at all. That what you—it's the same thing every week. It's—it's it's the same thing that it was in 1945 as it was in 2015. And so, why not? I mean, I go to chapel services at Yale at least three days a week, often five days a week. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, sometimes it's a disaster, but but usually it's quite provocative, and it's only thirty minutes, and it's quite. Uh, I find it very moving and stabilizing, and 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 well done. And I just don't see why a weekly service couldn't begin to incorporate stranger things. So liturgically disruptive. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because then if the sermon or if the notion of a sermon at least remains constant. Um, if you're if you're monkeying with the liturgy creatively and risking being strange and risking failure, it's going to hopefully set the sermon off in ways that if it's just rolled into the same bland liturgy week in and week out, I'm exceedingly guilty of doing this. I'm not a liturgically creative person. But I hear what you're saying. The scripture reading is going to blend into the hymn that came before it and the prayer that precedes it or follows it into the sermon. It's all just an undifferentiated mass, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think, I mean, the ones that I have been moved by, the, the, the services that I have been moved by have, have been the ones that where you do something unexpected. Suddenly they'll ask you to sit in silence for five minutes, which is a long time in a service, and can really... Five minutes. Jolt people, Yeah. But can make all kinds of things possible, and you know, uh, I just think they ought to. I I, don't, I just don't see what what's to be lost, really. Well, I guess if you're the preacher, getting the getting the criticism, <laughs> hell of a lot can be lost. <laughs> I think though that you're right. I mean, we have to be at this particular moment, liberal Protestants in particular. We need to be bolder than we've been and take risks because what we're doing, broadly speaking, isn't working. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there is then 
I mean, churches, my father used to say, I think he's quoting a parody of an old hymn, but he used to say, like a mighty turtle moves the church of God. <laughs> so we, we have to take risks, but we have to be in dialogue with our congregations to, you know, they have to trust those risks or be willing to suffer the, the, the times that it doesn't work. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is because I don't run a church. Um... When you're preparing a sermon, how does that feel different from preparing a lecture, from writing a poem? <laughs> well, it's very different um, because in a well, in a, in a poem, I'm completely at the mercy of the material. I mean, I'm just following the sounds to where it will go. Uh, I feel very much an instrument of it, to, and then. An essay, if it's like a serious essay, I'm aiming at art, then, I mean, I'm not talking about criticism now, but like a serious essay. Um, then there, that's some middle ground between feeling myself moving by the sounds of the sentences and having thoughts in my head. But still, it's the essay itself that I'm subjecting myself to. There is some process of letting go. A sermon, I'm much more in control. And I make discoveries in sermons, and I like it because I engage with the Bible in ways that I usually don't. Uh, but I do feel, I mean, there's a, there's a need. I mean, in a sermon, you, you know, you've got to get somewhere. You've got to leave people with something at the end. In an essay, you don't. Mm. You can, it can just be the experience of, of reading it. In a poem... I mean, you certainly don't. You don't have to give somebody a lesson or something like that. But in a sermon, I do feel an obligation to uh, leave people with some instruction. With moral instruction? with Not necessarily moral instruction, but like what I was preaching on yesterday was how to pray. And so I gave all those examples of how you might pray and, you know, what prayer might mean in your life. And I assumed my audience, correctly, I'm, I, I imagine my audience probably had a hard time with praying and uh and so I was addressing my message to them and I and I said kind of you look here's the way I do it and and I'm not very good at it and have a hard time with it here's what I've thought about and um then left them with ways of thinking about different prayers that they might make in their lives but I had somewhere that I I mean when I set out to speak about prayer I knew that I had to say something Solid, practical, and practical. Applicable. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting that you go into a sermon with, "Here is the practical thing I want this congregation to leave carrying with them." I think sometimes preachers who preach every week, who do it professionally, can get carried away with the mysticism of the whole enterprise, with being subservient to scripture, with and 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 can forget that people need something. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good insight. Huh, that's interesting. I didn't. I just assumed that's what preachers thought that they. Um, but you know, one thing I notice in the sermons that fail is uh, there's a transition to be made. You know, people talk about where you, whether you're supposed to bring the good news or not, and uh, somebody, one of my students, showed me the Lutheran formulation of a sermon the other day, and it was, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was. You know, a big block devoted to sin, and then you bring bring the good news. You know? I'll, I'll tell you what it is, if I remember you know it, correctly. Yeah. Well, the formulation that that feels very Lutheran to me is this one um, from the book, The Four Pages of the Sermon, which says, 
what we ought to do when we approach it. And it's, it's this, this, I'm not knocking it. This has been a method that I've found to be very beneficial. But it says, take a look at the text, see what the problem in the text is, where the sin in the text is, see what the contemporary analog to that problem is, see where grace attends to the problem in the text, the sin in the text, and then name where grace is attending to the contemporary analog of that problem. Yeah, that sounds about right. And um, so every single sermon, if you follow that method, the assumption is there's good news for every problem, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's very it's a very hopeful method. Um, what's your what's your problem with it? The problem is, uh, well, sometimes there's not good news, uh, but that's fine. I mean, preachers know when to uh, do that. But the problem is that in the movement to good news, that usually, that uh, most ministers. There, you can feel the machinery grinding from the pointing out the problem to the good news. And suddenly there's this grinding of gears, and, and then you've got the good news coming down. And if you're listening outside the preacher's <laughs> office at like 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, you can actually <laughs> right, you can actually hear it. Yeah. Hear them working the stick shift. <laughs> and so I think... <laughs> it's I, just too transparent? It's, it's too transparent, and I think it's too transparent for everybody. And I think in those instances... The best thing to do is maybe to be honest uh, uh, or to use a work of art because that's where a work of art could really help you. If you can't, if it feels false to make that transition, a work of art can make that liminal, liminal is a word that I hate and don't allow my students to use, but, but it can make that liminal space, uh, that transition space um, viable instead of simply, you know, and people can walk away with that instead of this, you know, Something shoved down their gullets, the good news shoved down their gullets. Well, I do find in my own preaching that oftentimes it'll get to Thursday, I'll be working on a sermon, I've got a word count that you know I try to, to hit because I know how long that will take in terms of our liturgy here, and it's 2,000 words, I'll be 1,600 words in, and I have to cram the good news into the remaining 400 words. It's much easier to write about sin than it is to write about grace. Yeah. Um, because we encounter it more frequently, I think, unfortunately. But I like that idea that, and again, it's not necessarily up to the preacher to sew it all up. If we can blow it all open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's what, if there are more sermons like that, and I have heard some like that, that uh, don't do that, sort of refuse to do that at the end. They just leave it, it leaves you open. Um, and, you know, of course, I'm a particular sensibility. For me, that's great. I walk away and think, think about things. But I'm sure other people would want some kind of closure at the end there, tight closure. It seems to me that, you know, on some days you feel the presence of God very intensely and you want to say that. And that's great if a preacher can get up there and do that and it's believable. But some days what people need to hear is the absence of God. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of preachers won't, won't say that, you know. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll locate it. They'll, they'll, it'll become a structural thing. They'll talk about structural sins, you know, like racism or sexism or uh, things that everybody in the audience agrees with, uh, but agrees with so automatically that essentially it's we could have watched a video on it, or you know. Do you think people are buying into a false dichotomy where if if I'm honest with you, as you know you. 
if I, the preacher, am honest with my congregation about my own experience of God's absence, somehow I'm espousing atheism, somehow I'm denying what I might have said the week before about the beauty of God's presence, that there's this desire for consistency in the pulpit that is not true in the life of faith, right? It oscillates. Um, and our great experience of God's absence doesn't mean God is absent, right? Yeah. No, but I just, I just think, I mean, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be these extremities. You don't have to say, you know, God is in your pocket one week and God is dead the next. You know, it's, I mean, it can be a continuity of longing, mm. you know, mm. and, and I think, I mean, I've certainly heard preachers do that. I've heard you do that. You can, I mean, I don't think it's, I just think people are starved for it. When I see preachers not doing it, I, I know that there are people in their audience who desperately want them to do it because I talk to them afterwards. To do what? To name that longing? To play around with it? To Yeah, to name the longing and to, uh, to bring the intensity of faith into the pulpit. Uh, I mean, the intensity of belief and the intensity of, the intensity of wanting to believe. You know, that's... I, I, I mean, it, it's heroic... I've said this before, but I do see the life of a minister as a heroic thing because I can imagine how difficult it is Sunday after Sunday to sit down and write a sermon and bring the good news. I mean, it, it's it's tough. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. Uh, but people are starved for it, and they're starved for some indication that this feeling that they have in their hearts is... Could be validated that other people might be feeling it that and that there's somewhere to put it you know and and if it's falsified which is the usual problem um if it's falsified in ways that they can't they can't they know that their feeling is not going to fit into what they're being given i mean it's almost worse than if they hadn't gone to church at all absolutely and there there are times when if I'm understanding this correctly or just feeling it myself, where the impulse toward falsification is, I don't know, you feel, I feel as if I'm trying to protect my congregation, trying to protect myself, um, when if we can break through that resistance, we get to some sort of deeper truth. Yeah. Um, on a whole other level, just in terms of sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, I don't know. I, I remember after a year or two of preaching when I was younger, I really, I had this, it's a, it's a, this is a silly thing, but I had this light bulb go off because for years I had been frustrated with television sitcoms that could be funny once and then four episodes in a row made, didn't make me laugh and then the fifth one it would crack me up again and it'd be like, why can't these people make me laugh every week? And then having to write a sermon every week is like, well, <laughs> that's why <laughs> it's really hard to, to do anything well week in and week out. Um, but I do think, and I, and I, if you're not naming it explicitly, I, I mean, I am. I think that your childhood experience of, of the Baptist church that places a primacy on experience and authenticity and intensity in a way that liberal Protestantism wants to hold things off at a reserve and be analytical and be more big picture um, can and often is, um, in addition to doing good things, a distancing, right? Because to get too close to God is to be annihilated, and, yeah. and so we, we want to step back. But that stepping back can feel bogus, right? Yeah, so, cold and estranging. Um, you know what? If you know one of the what, 
I mean, at Yale in the chapel services, we don't have sermons every day. There might be two a week. And I've often wondered, I mean, liberal Protestantism, all Protestantism, puts such an emphasis on preaching. And, uh, you know, why? Why can't, why can't we not have a sermon once? Or why can't we, you know, have a tiny little sermon or, or split it up or have something different? In fact, I saw this guy, Tom Troger, the wonderful, he just retired, but he, was, he, he taught homiletics at Yale for years and years. And um, he gave a sermon at the church I go to in New Haven in which it was split up over the course of the, of the 45 minutes. And so he got up, and he, what he did was acted out. He didn't, I mean, that makes it sound a little corny, but he, had, he created voices for all of the people around the execution of Jesus. So Herod and Caiaphas and uh, Mary and uh, everyone but Jesus. And, and, uh, uh, and he, he created this drama uh, of these little, and they were like three minutes long each. And it was so powerful. It was so incredible. And I'd never seen anybody do that. Just do this thing. He would stand, and then they'd have a song or maybe a verse. So it was woven into, woven the, into the course of the whole service. And then it was the very last thing, too, so that he was the last one up there. And he ended with that. You know, and, and it, was, it was quite inventive and powerful, I thought. I think that a lot of preachers aren't creative in terms of format. You know? yeah. and, and we spend our energy on content. But one of the things I hear you saying is if we spent a little more energy on format, the content would emerge in sharper relief, perhaps. Yeah. Um, when you Google Christian Wyman preacher, um, which I did in order to, uh, to, to find, to find that, that, that bit that we started with, what, what pops up, of course, is, is your poem, um, The Preacher Addresses the Seminarians. Yeah. I was hoping you could read that, and then we can see whether or not what you have to say here touches upon some of the things we've discussed. Okay. So this is a, an older preacher who's come back to address a class of seminarians. You know, ostensibly it's a graduation or who knows, maybe it's just a lecture. I tell you it's a bitch existence some Sundays and it's no good pretending you don't have to pretend. Don't have to hitch up those glue-futured nags hope and help and whip the sorry chariot of yourself toward whatever hell your heaven is on days like these. I tell you it takes some hunger heaven itself won't slake to be so twitchingly intent on the pretty organist's pedaling, so lizardly alert to the curvelessness of her choir robe. Here it comes, brothers and sisters, the confession of sins, hominy hominy, dipstick doxology, one more church-curdled hymn we don't so much sing as haunt, grounded altos, gear-grinding tenors, Two score and ten gently bewildered men, lip-sinking along. You're up, pastor. Bring on the unthunder. Some trickle-piss tangent to reality, some bit of the gospel grueling out of you. I tell you, sometimes mercy means nothing but release from this homiletic hologram, a little flesh-step sideways, as it were, setting passion on autopilot as if it weren't to gaze out in peace at your peaceless parishioners, booze glazes and facelifts, bad mortgages, bored marriages, a masonry of faces at once specific 
and generic, and here and there that rapt, famished look that leaps from person to person, year to year, like a holy flu. All these little crevices into which you've crawled like a chubby plumber with useless tools. Here, have a verse for your wife's death. Here, have a death for your life's curse. I tell you some Sundays, even the children's sermon, maybe especially this, sharks your gut like a bite of tin some beer-guzzling goat either drunkenly or mistakenly decides to sample. I know what you're thinking. Christ's in this. He'll get to it, the old cunner. Somewhere, somehow, there's the miracle meat, the aurora borealis blood, every last atom compacted to a grave, and the one thing that every man must lose to save. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you two things today. First, though this is not, for me, one of those bilious of braiding days, though in fact I stand before you in a rage of faith and have all good hope that you will all go help untold souls back into their bodies, ease the annihilating no above which they float. The truth is, our only savior is failure. Which brings me to the second thing, that goat. It was real. It is, as is usually the case, the displacement of agency that is the lie. It was long ago, Mexico, my demon days. It was a wager whose stakes I failed to appreciate. He tottered. He flowered. He writhed time to a fraught quiet and kicked occasionally and lay there twitching, watching me die. So I've had a lot of preachers ask me about this poem, uh, a little timorously sometimes. <laughs> um, Can you make it palatable for us? <laughs> um, but I mean, my answer is, I mean, this poem seems to be a repudiation of, of preaching, of preaching and church and the whole idea of it. This preacher's lived his life preaching and is now saying, you know, dipstick doxology, church curdled hymns, and all these things, and making fun of it. But uh, by the end, I hope it's clear that he's destroying it so that it can live again, that it can have life. And and if you talk about uh, theology and earshot of the dying Christ, well, that's exactly what this poem is meant to be about. Um, this man tells the story about this goat that uh, essentially he killed uh, by giving it a can and the displacement of agency that is the lie. And, uh, uh, and in the end, when the goat is dying, it's the man that's dying. He's having, that's the minute when he has his realization of God and and uh, he's essentially being destroyed and made fit for this life of Christianity that he turned to you know it was his demon days then and this is the thing that saved him uh, but he's telling these people they got a hell of a rough road ahead of them <laughs> when you say in the poem our only our only hope for salvation is failure our only savior is failure our only savior is failure um, it calls to mind 
that, that wonderful line from um, Kierkegaard where he says, uh, a man reaches the highest pitch of his perfection when he realizes he can do nothing for himself. Mm. That so so is this poem about the mortification of our sins, right? Like just this, and that the preacher is the preacher is then saying that same dynamic that he was confronted with when he killed that goat um, of his own rottenness, right? Yeah. Um, that we also have to be able to see the the rottenness and the whole apparatus of of what we're doing professionally. Of, I think of, that's of right. Church. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I think he is, yeah, trying to prepare them to be severely disillusioned uh, and to try to give them some hope that might grow out of that failure. This moment of failure becomes the great moment of strength. I mean, that's the, that is what Christianity is for me. Somebody asked me last night, I gave a poetry reading at the University of Chicago last night, and, and in the Q&A, it was great, you know, there's a mix of uh, religious people there. It was in Rockefeller Chapel, and... Um, and somebody asked me how I reconcile the generality, generality of religion, you know, wanting to speak to people of different faiths. And he had read one of my books and, and the particularity of Jesus. And, uh, and I said, I don't, that I find it impossible that, uh, I mean, I really want to speak to people. And I feel, I, I do feel called to speak to people who are having a hard time reconciling themselves to Christianity. A lot of atheists seem to read what I write. Um, but I also find it very difficult to talk about religion without talking about Christ. That I'm, that that's where, it, that's where it comes back to me always. And that the particularity of it, and that's what rescues me from amorphism, and also uh, what rescues me from suffering, being... Um, crushing and and the only answer you know and so I had to I had I feel like I didn't have a great answer a satisfactory answer for him but that's so the only answer I could give him is the is the way in which Christ rescues you from suffering being crushing because he carries the suffering because he participates in it because he too is there he's holding there, these things yeah he's there in it and can make it mean I mean it, you know the unbelievable distances and scope of creation so much greater than we thought and then to think of all of that being slammed into time at one point and I mean that's the amazing thing that every bit of that every bit of it just been concentrated in one little one child and one person growing up and as vulnerable as we are uh, that's that to me is the miracle. I mean, that that the incarnational miracle, and uh, that he suffers with us, and that that suffering is not meaningless. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Matt. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.